Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is God's word. Father, if we've been here for the last few weeks, we are perhaps uh, used to uh, Jesus surprising us with his words. Uh, They're not always what we would desire to hear. Uh, They're unexpected, and his parables often have a little punch or sting to them. And so, Father, our prayer this evening, my prayer is that we hear what we need to hear. Please, would your spirit be about his work of applying truth deeply to us? And would we hear what we need to hear this evening and respond rightly to the honour of your name? Amen. Uh, now, most people enjoy a wedding, most, um, and uh, I don't know how you, many you've been to. I'm, I'm putting myself out there and saying, I reckon I've been to more weddings than anyone in this room. That's a bold claim, but I am a vicar. And uh, therefore, I, I attend more than is average. I mean, you can have a go if you want to have a go at me. Um, perhaps one or two musicians have done a lot of receptions, professionals. But, uh, and I still love weddings, which is good, particularly if yours is next month. Um, I do very much, no, I do. I still, uh, there, there's enormous joy in marrying people you know, seeing them take their vows uh, in the side of God together. And it's rare that I've been to an awkward wedding or seen awkward moments at weddings. I can think of one or two. I can think of, well, it wasn't here at this church, but uh, friends from university got married. The best man gave a speech. He, he sailed a little close to the wind. In fact, one joke was just simply too crude. Uh, the wife's mother got up and slapped him uh, in the middle, uh, and it was memorable. <laughs> and she declared, you have ruined my day. There's just all sorts of things wrong there. It's not your day, madam, but anyway. Uh, it was awkward. It was awkward. But probably nothing like as awkward as this wedding. 
This is like something from The Godfather, isn't it? Or Goodfellas, or Sopranos or something. It's a mafioso wedding. It's a wedding. It's good. Uh, But the king's servants, uh, well, they get killed during the canapes. Oops. So the king gets up, says to the chef, keep everything warm, will you? I'm just going to go after an exact revenge. Off he goes and uh, destroys a city. Hopefully they've got good capacity to keep the food warm. I don't know how that quite works, but off he goes, destroys a city. Then comes back, sits down to his starter. Very brutal, but there we go. No one says anything. He is the king after all. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. He's just destroyed a city. And we're all sitting down and enjoying the dinner, and then there's someone who's clearly not wearing the right clothes. He's forgot his morning suit. He may be in his birthday suit. And uh, so he's picked up and physically bound and thrown out. And Jesus says, and the kingdom of heaven is like that. And we think, ooh, really? Hmm. Now let's orientate ourselves a little bit again, uh, if you haven't been here in particular. We're in this section, really it's one from uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 23, all the way through to the end of chapter 23, of heightened conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. See, he's still primarily talking to them, the authorities. So verse 23 of chapter 21, Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. Chief priests and elders. Or you can see it still in uh, verse 45, just before our reading of chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 45. It is when the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables... They knew he was talking about them. That's the primary audience. And explains in part why this story is so very different from the other time we hear Jesus telling the story of a banquet. So Luke 14, he tells the story of a banquet. And it's a softer version. It's years earlier, it's near the beginning of his ministry, and he's telling it to a broad group of people. He just happens to be at dinner with all sorts of folk. And that's very different from here. A few days before he dies heightened conflict. It is the religious leaders of the day are at him and they're out to kill him. He knows that. And so his language is blunter at this point. It's why uh, Luke 14, the wedding bank, was a nice parable. It's sort of the 18 version, if you will. But it's because of when it comes in Jesus' ministry. Three things, three things we're going to look at. Uh, It goes a little like this, I think. So the king invites us to a fabulous banquet, one to four. The initial guests despise his offer, five to ten. Some later guests were not prepared. Those are the last little bit. Okay, Uh, let's work uh, work it through. Uh, First of all then, the king invites us to a fabulous banquet, verses one to four. So Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. It's a royal wedding. Now, happily, most of us don't have to think too hard to remember a royal wedding only a few years ago, uh, 2011, when William and Kate married. And, you know, that's an extravagant affair when the king's son marries. So, uh, 2011, apparently the cost was £20 million, approximately. I don't know if you watched much of it, all of it, just the highlights on the news. I had no intention to watch it, but just got, just get sucked in. Maybe it was the people I was with. You see, you know, the the guests, how many were there? 1900 arriving at Westminster Abbey by a royal coach, by sort of silver bus. 
uh, and the commenter, oh, doesn't she look good? Doesn't she look good? Oh, Princess Beatrice. Okay, and uh, you know, all, you know, those poor, those poor girls are just going to be remembered for the rest of their lives of hats they wore on one day. Ridiculous, ridiculous. Not their hats, although they were, uh, but the comment made of them. But what a privilege to be invited. So 1,900 at the Abbey, 600 for lunch at Buckingham Palace, and 300 stayed on for the evening. What a privilege. Now, for some reason, my invitation didn't come. I'm not entirely sure what happened. Uh, One of our friends, um, uh, Jonathan, he is director of the Queen's Art Collection, which is a fairly cool job, I think, uh, to have. And therefore, he's a fairly high-ranking courtier and all sorts of letters after his name, etc. So our friend Jonathan and his uh, wife were invited. And it's a sort of mixed bag for him, going along to something like the royal wedding. Great privilege to go and uh, have lunch at the palace. You know, the, well, I mean, he does that every day, actually. It's where he works. But, um, you know, at the wedding, that's a big deal. Not Only a few hundred people get... But, of course, you, you're the curator of the Queen's Collection. You're a little bit nervous that when the disco gets going in the evening a cupcake's going to land on a priceless Rembrandt, or there's this Ming vase that just gets used as an ashtray. He's always very discreet. I saw him, you know, a few days afterwards. Any damage, Jonathan? Uh, A little cleaning, a little cleaning, was uh, his very polite uh, response. Goodness knows how much you must be uh, stressed about that. But if if you picked up anything of the paper, 600 for lunch at Buckingham Palace then, an eight-tiered wedding cake, 900 sugar paste flowers on it, 15,000 canapes. I'm all about the canapes at a wedding. I uh, love canapes. That's, that's a good number, it seems to me. Um, divided by 600. You've done all right there, haven't you? Um, dressed crab from Wales, lamb fillets from Highgrove, homemade ice cream in brandy snap baskets. Well, that was a bit rough on the Queen, getting her up all night to do that. Um, wines from the Buckingham Palace cellar. They're going to be good, aren't they? You know they're going to be good. And then apparently at 2 a.m., bacon sandwiches, according to Prince Harry's own recipe. How hard can that be? <laughs> but that's, you know, what a privilege to be there. Uh, I don't, you know, if you got to go with someone you know, what fun. You just get a look around the palace, the speeches, you know, terrific. What a fabulous invitation. The New Testament repeatedly presents the kingdom of God as a banquet. So we've sung of that already, that great picture of Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain in place of sinners. Repeatedly, that is the picture. And certainly when you get to, to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that is the, the overwhelming, it's the first thing you do when you get to heaven is eat and drink. It's banquet time. It's feasting time. You and I are invited to enjoy the largesse, the generosity, the magnificence of the King. Which is just a reminder, if you've forgotten it, that the call of Christianity, the call to become a Christian is a call to, well, to joy, if you forget it, to delight. Oh, there'll be hardships before you get to heaven, of course. But fundamentally, it's the call to a relationship of deep joy with a wonderful, generous king and physically will be there one day if you're Christians. And it will be magnificent. And I don't know what the chandeliers look like in heaven, but they're good. They're good. Now, as is normal, uh, verse 3, the tradition of the day, you'd have a double invitation. The king's going to have a banquet. You know, it takes time. He doesn't just order his food in from Tesco's. Uh, You know, the the cattle, etc., everything is gathered at the king's castle or palace. 
so I'm having a banquet next week. Fine, we'll, you know, we'll come. There's a double invitation. Okay, now it's ready. Comes the second invite. And the shock is verse 3. He sent his servants to those who'd been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Oh, they'd committed to the king earlier. But now the second invite comes, they decline. Just as in the previous parable of the tenants, though, God is shown to be patient, doesn't give up on people straight away. So verse 4, then he sent some more servants, very similar to the uh, parable of the tenants. Do you remember that? If you were here last week, uh, verse 36 of chapter 21, people get killed, he sends more servants. Anyway, uh, in our reading tonight, chapter 22, verse 4, he sent more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. It almost has a slightly pleading feel to it. Oh, but everything's ready. You know, I've killed Daisy and the best cattle and everything. Come on. Now, even in the 21st century where we have a, a, a weak constitutional monarchy with the Queen largely in ceremonial role, if you turn her down, she doesn't say, oh, do come on. If you turn down an invitation to the royal wedding, that's it. She doesn't come begging or send someone begging, oh, please come. That's it. Your stuff. This, in a period of, a sort of absolute monarchy, I guess, when Jesus is uh, teaching it, no king asks twice. You don't. You say no, you're stuffed, you're out, you miss out, bozo. The king doesn't beg you to come. And yet, as is often in uh, the stories that Jesus tells us, it is the, the ludicrous details, the bizarre details, they're the things that Jesus ex- is exaggerating. They're what we're meant to notice. And so here, God is an inviter. So verse 3, he invites Verse 4, he invites again. Of course, those people will eventually reject. And so he goes in verse 9, go to the street corners and invite a whole different crowd of people. And the summary of the whole parable comes at the end. Verse 14, many are invited. If you are chosen. The point Jesus is saying is the living God is one who repeatedly says, come, come, come. Come back to me. Come and enjoy eternity with me. Come and feast with me. I have magnificent riches to bestow upon you. Come. He repeatedly invites. Repeatedly the Lord seeks out. He doesn't wipe out. Oh, there's a time and a place for that. But repeatedly, it's the same message in one sense as the, as the parable last week. Repeatedly, all day long, he holds out his hands and saying, will you come? He asks and he asks. He's generous and he's persistent. The king invites us to a fabulous banquet. But two different groups in different ways reject him. Let's look at the first then. The initial guests, verses 5 to 10. Here's the second point. The initial guests despise his offer. Verses 5 to 10. The initial guests despise his offer. Now, I think that even in verses 5 and 6, there are two different little groups, very closely aligned. But let's look at them. Verse 5. But 
But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. That seems to be the first way of declining God's offer. People who are simply indifferent. Just, uh, whatever. They just go about their own business. Nothing wrong, verse 5, with work, be it in the city or in the country. But the emphasis seems to be on his. So one went off to his field, another to his business. Here are people who are self-absorbed in their own projects. That they can't notice what fabulously is being put on offer for them. They've just got their heads down in their own business and cannot see what's on offer. That the king is offering them unmissable joy. That is a timeless mistake. It's not, it's very easy for entirely legitimate and good occupations to become idolatrous preoccupations. That's not hard. We all of us can drift in that direction at times. Something that is entirely good as an occupation becomes a preoccupation and we just neglect what is most important. People drift that way all the time. No different to people physically making metal wooden gods in the Old Testament. It's quite easy to worship the work of our own hands. And that's what these guys are doing in verse 5. I think verse 6 are a slightly different group. Obviously, it's a bit more hostile. Verse 6, the rest seized his servants, ill-treated them, and killed them. Outright hostility. Now, bearing in mind, the primary audience then, the leaders, Pharisees, uh, uh, elders of the people, they're the people primarily in view. And those are the people who, right at that moment in time, were fiercely, aggressively rejecting Jesus. So I think the people in verse 6 are meant to be them the religious leaders. And I'd tentatively suggest verse 5 is the nation of Israel as a whole, indifferent. So it doesn't matter if it's this somewhat indifferent people as a whole of Israel or the leadership who are aggressively hostile. Both are rejecting the offer of the living God. And the parable is critical of them both. And so verse 7 comes the response of the king. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers. And burned their city. We said before, this parable, this picture was literally fulfilled in the year AD 70. Rome, Roman soldiers came in and burned and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And the religious leaders had nothing to centre their religion on. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, there is no great surprise to what Jesus is saying here. Because repeatedly he emphasized that regime change was coming. No longer were the people of God, just the nation of Israel, ruled over by this uh, religious elite who opposed him. That's going to go, and instead you're going to have the church. He's been saying this over and over and over again and warning them. Regime change is about to take place. And so here, the first group, I think Jesus is primarily, he's attacking the presumption of the Pharisees and the elders. So they say no. But then you see the the ridiculous generosity of God again. So verse 9, verse 10. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone. Anyone you can find. Anyone's invited. 
So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. All types of people. And again, we're meant to notice the king offers. No one has earned an invitation. He just goes and freely offers. And that is the way you enter the kingdom of heaven. You receive a free offer that God throws out. Will you trust that Jesus has died for you? It's the only way anyone enters the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. He's not obliged to take anyone. Even if you're the Queen of England and you have a royal wedding for your uh, uh, grandson, I guess, I don't know how, quite how it works, but there are certain people that Queen Elizabeth was obliged to invite to, their, to, uh, to the wedding. There are sort of heads of states, um, I don't know, England football captains are sort of a discretionary choice, interesting. But, um, uh, you know, there's something you just got to invite. And uh, for those of you who've organised a wedding, uh, Nathan and Charlotte's got engaged uh, yesterday. They've got to plan a wedding. They will discover, uh, there we go, uh, they will discover uh, there are some people you're just obliged to invite. You know, you look, I mean, it's just how it is. I don't, don't want to be rude. But you look down... Um, you look down, who's coming? Who are, who are Reg and Margaret? Are oh, they my parents' next-door neighbours? Oh, I've never met them. Yeah, they've got to come. I mean, they may be very lovely, uh, but it's just how it is. There's always people at your wedding. You're, you know, obliged to... What? Why, are, why are Uncle David and Auntie Margaret on the list? Mum? Well, they've got to come. But you hate them, I know, but they've just got to come. There's just, um, it's just weddings, isn't it? And families are a bit like that. There are always some people you're obliged to bring to your wedding. Uh, those who've married recently are nodding away. <laughs> um, God isn't obliged to invite anyone. I mean, who, who do you think the living God is obliged to invite? No one. A pope? No. A bishop? No. A super, super virtuous person? No. Run a marathon for church? No. He's not obliged to invite anyone. He just says, it's a free invitation. I throw it out. You just need to trust in my son. You see that verse 10, all, all sorts of people. Go and gather all the people. All are invited there is not a single person gathered here this evening who can say they've not received an invitation to the wedding banquet of Jesus Christ. If you've never done before this evening, here this evening, Jesus, the, the living God says, come. Come. And you're not limited by numbers. It's not Westminster Abbey with its mere 1,900 seats. The kingdom of God is a bit bigger than that. All can come. The king invites us to a fabulous banquet. The initial guest despises offer, but it goes out to others. And that will be end of verse 10. That's a nice story, I guess. Some people reject it, but the offer goes out. And uh, verse 10, we could all go there and say amen and go home. And it's quite nice, apart from Jesus keeps going. 
And it's not a sort of secret ending. It's not like one of those annoying films these days when you're halfway out of the cinema and they, what? It's come back. Why are you doing that? Um, you know, half the credits rolled and they sort of, you know, easy mis- No, he just keeps going. Verse 11. Third thing. Some of the later guests were not prepared. Verses 11 to 13. Verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Uh, In the culture of the day, you didn't put on your uh, morning suit, which is quite good, because it would have been hot in that part of the world. But white garments, there's a reason throughout the book of Revelation, white garments are what the saints are given to wear, because that's what you wear at a wedding. You put on something clean, and white is hard to be clean. So if you put on white garments, and they are clean, you've made a bit of effort. That's the point of it all. And this man would have been expected, you coming to a wedding, you put on white garments. You're going to the king's son's wedding, you really put on your white garments. You're sort of super white, you know, you've you've personal magicked it to get it as white as you can possibly be. But this man doesn't. And culturally that is deeply offensive. It doesn't quite work. Clothing just doesn't have the same cultural implication as it does in the first century. But I guess it's something like you're invited to the royal wedding and you go for lunch at Buckingham Palace and you turn up in a pair of Speedos. And that's just insulting. That's just wrong. On every level. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's not uh, um, That's just wrong. And so the man's outward garment reveals his inward contempt for his host. This is a fabulous offer. You don't contemptuously turn up wearing your scruffiest clothes. But here's a guy who said, I'm in, and I can do what I want. I can wear what I want. I can act as I want. Now I'm in. No. No, you can't. Verse 13 and 14, Then the king told the attendants, tie him in hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Jesus warns us there'll be some who initially say yes to him. But in their hearts, somewhat contemptuous. There are many who profess faith. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm in. And now I can do what I want. I can live as I want. I can act as I want. No. No, says Jesus, no you can't. Now the point of this section, 11 to 13, the wedding clothes, it's just appropriate behaviour. You enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ by faith in him. You show you belong by listening to him. We thought about this in particular a couple of weeks ago. But faith is demonstrated in listening. You can't say to Jesus, I trust you, I follow you, and I'm never listening to anything you say. It just just makes no sense. 
So much like, I guess, in Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the soils in chapter 13, there are some who show initial enthusiasm, excitement, and grow up, and then just fade and wither and collapse. Or in chapter 25, you get the, the virgins who are enormously excited initially, but there's no perseverance. And always someone will be a little shocked to hear Jesus say something like this. But the New Testament never gives us an example of someone who genuinely professes faith but doesn't change. You never see it. Once you've genuinely placed your faith in Jesus Christ, say, yes, I'll have your invitation. The grace of God changes you. You do dress yourself appropriately in how you live. And so Jesus is offering a living, excuse me, Jesus is offering a, a loving warning here. The king invites us to a fabulous banquet. Oh, the initial guests uh, despise his offer. It'll be obvious for some. No! And they just reject it. No, I can't be bothered. But others. Uh, and here in this section of Jesus' parables, this third in a series of parables, this one probably bites most for a church in the 21st century. The others who initially say, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come. But their behaviour, their attitude to God, you know, they've never really put their trust in him. Look, a few weeks ago, I was uh, cycling home midweek, uh, Thursday night, I guess it was about 10 o'clock, uh, cycling home, my usual route, as I uh, cycled up to Parliament Square, um, there was an amber light, it was mostly amber, there might have been a hint of red, or it may have been the other way around, I can't quite remember very clearly. Uh, but I went through this light, and uh, it was fine, uh, and then, woo, came up behind me, and uh, second time in the last year or so, it's not a great habit for a minister of the church. But, um, uh, woo, comes up behind me. And a uh, policeman you know, pulled me over on his motorbike. And uh, he didn't say much. He just said, last Tuesday, I knocked on a woman's door. She was about 40. She had two children. I knocked on her door and told her earlier that evening, her husband, their father, had gone through a red light, been knocked off his bike and killed. I hate that part of my job. Don't make me do it again. And off he went. To be honest, I felt a bit foolish. I was pretty crushed. I've been the safest cyclist on the streets of London uh, ever since. Now that like shakes you up when someone does that to you. But it is for my good. And that's why he did it. It's a loving warning. It shook me from apathy. Oh. Oh, cyclists do die if they're not careful. Yes, they do. Oh. There are people in churches who never really repent and trust in Jesus. It's just superficial. Yes. Oh. Yeah, it wakes you up a bit. The question this parable is asking is, Will you be at the wedding banquet of Jesus Christ in eternity? That's what he's asking. It's the most unmissable event of the whole of the universe. That's why God created this universe, for that wedding banquet. Will you be there? 
obviously you look at this parable and think there must be three groups. There are the initial guests who reject God's offer. They're not interested in Jesus. There are the later guests who say, yeah, I'll be a Christian, but then show contempt for God in their lifestyles. And those, then thirdly, there are the genuine guests. Of course, there are many of them who enjoyed the banquet. Uh, I take it in most churches, there'll be a mixture of the three. Question. If you read this parable, hear this tonight, and ask yourself, Oh, you know, I hate things like that. Am I, am I a Christian? Am I? What do you do if you find your assurance unsettled? What do you do? Well, you ask questions. You need a bit of medical treatment. You don't need to find out what's going wrong. If people are lacking assurance, generally, it's for two reasons. One of two reasons. Bad belief or bad behavior. Let me give a, so one example. Anxious Annie. Anxious Annie has bad belief. Anxious Annie is genuinely a Christian. She's invited to the banquet of the king and she knows it. She said yes eight years ago. Her life has changed over that time. She dresses appropriately as a follower of Jesus Christ. But she reads Psalm, excuse me, she reads Matthew 22, this parable, and panics and says, but last week I was so angry with my boss. In my head I swore at him. And I went home and I kicked the cat and I threw the goldfish out. I was so angry. Am I not wearing the right clothes? Am I really a Christian? Have I come before the king undressed? Now, I take it that anxious Annie just needs to be reminded, no, look, you have trusted in the, you've had a bad day. Everyone has bad days. But you've trusted in the king and you can be forgiven anything and everything if you repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And so Annie needs to hear, as we sometimes, you know, sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, up would, look, up would I look and see him there who died and took away my sin. Because the sin the Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. No, Jesus has died for me. I know that, I know that. I've had a bad week, but I know that. So put away your bad belief, Annie, and just trust that. Okay, she needs to trust it. Bad belief is doubting that she can be forgiven if she says sorry and repents. Of course she can. But then bad behaviour. What about Blase Brian? I know they're naff. What about Blase Brian? He calls himself a Christian, but he's only really interested in what it does for him. In fact, he might not be here tonight because he doesn't come very regularly. He doesn't really care about encouraging others. He'll only go to church if it's convenient. There are lifestyle issues for Blase Brian. He's caught himself up in an immoral practice of work. He's not entirely sure how to confess what he's done without losing his job. He's in a bit of a fix and he's drinking far too much on a regular basis. He hears this and thinks, golly, I wonder if I am a Christian. He's right to be worried. And he needs to repent. And once he's genuinely repented and made amends for the mess he's made at work, if he gets the sack, that's what it takes. That's what genuine repentance looks like for confessing you've done wrong. So be it. But he should be unsettled until he's repented of what he's done wrong and gone again to Jesus and said, will you forgive me? So what do you, you know, I can't, without a conversation with you, if you feel unsettled by this parable, I can't tell you what to do. 
I don't know if you're anxious, Annie, or Blase Brian, or probably neither, so probably got your own name, I know. But essentially, if you're unsettled by this parable, look to Jesus Christ. Know you can be forgiven anything. Repent of anything you think you might have done wrong and then just get on with loving him and obeying him. In one sense, the medicine is simple. Clothe yourself appropriately as one who's trusted in Jesus Christ. In reality, you've got to chat it through with someone else because you can go a bit doolally trying to think it through in your own mind sometimes. Chat it through with someone else. Look, the main thing is the king invites us to a fabulous banquet. It is fabulous. Sometimes we forget the wedding banquet It'll do more than undo the wrongs of this world. It'll be a delight and a bliss and a joy beyond any we've ever known. We had that reading in Isaiah 25. Not only is it the most wonderful food and drink the world has ever seen, but the shroud of death is removed forever. That is extraordinary, isn't it? The host is Jesus Christ. The people are perfected and therefore delightful. And the living God invites many And when they say no, he invites them again. And he invites them again. And he invites them again. But at some point, this life ends. So come to him. Come to him. Come to him. Is his plea. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we ask again that uh, we would hear this evening what we need to hear. Father, if it is right that we're unsettled by a parable such as this in order to uh, repent wholeheartedly and come back to you, would we hear that? Father, for those who are more tender conscienced and, uh, and unsettled when they don't need to be, would they hear the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would they know that he is the one who has died for them? And they have nothing to fear. Father, would you hear, would we hear rather, what we need to hear this evening? And leave here rejoicing that ahead there is a banquet beyond any we've ever known in this life. We ask it in his great name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.